0: I realised from a very early stage that this was wrong. That something wasn't right here. Something really important wasn't right about this. That got me into doing a lot of uh, homework. You know, so I started to dig. And yet I was probably one of the most naive individuals you could <laughs> you could hold to me. I'd never been on a demonstration prior to 2020. You know, I tended to believe what I was told, what the state said. Broadly, took it for. Uh, gospel but obviously that all that changed. For a while I did cling on to the idea that what was happening was some combination of incompetence and panic. You know, and that, that could explain it. You know, that's, I'm not going to go anywhere else thinking what's going on. And then obviously as it went on, it became you know blatantly obvious something wasn't right. This virus, 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 that's the only thing to consider. As long as they did their job on you know how to control a virus that warms at all costs. Their job was done and there was very little consideration of the collateral damage.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Staying Free podcast. In this episode I spoke with Gary Sidley who is a retired clinical psychologist and a member of the Heart organisation who has been extremely proactive in advocating for a rational response to COVID-19 which takes account of all of the collateral damage with particular respect to mental health. I think you'll agree that Gary is a very selfless person and he's put a huge amount of his own time and energy into fighting for this cause and I think we're all better off having Gary as an ally during these times. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please give it a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give it a five-star review on whichever podcast platform you're using. And finally, please do follow Gary and the work that he's doing. I know that he's got a couple of petitions going on right now, one in particular regarding masks in medical settings, so please do go and check those out. All right, on to the episode. I know that you worked in the NHS as a consultant. Are you still doing that now or are you? I oh, do no,
0: re- I retired in 2013. Okay,
1: yeah, that's a good starting point then. So do you think that since you are retired, from working in the NHS, that that's kind of given you a, I guess, an ability to speak about these issues which other people wouldn't be able to because something that I've noticed is that there's not that many NHS workers speaking out.
0: I think that's absolutely right, yeah. Uh, the brave ones who deserve all our credit are those that are still on the front line, who are still in the system. After saying that, it, it's, it's not been without costs, I don't think, speak, speaking out. Since 2020, I've definitely... Uh, lost a few friendships uh, personally and from my past employment. Um, A lot more friendships and liaisons with ex-colleagues have got more distant (laughs) and more remote. So uh, it's not without cost, but but you're absolutely right. I think it's the, the people, the few who are still in the system doing or trying to do the day job who, who've managed to stick their head above the parapet? I think I think they deserve huge credit, and I've got you know, huge admiration for them.
1: And do you know how that's been for them? The people who have stuck their head above the parapet have they faced kind of career consequences for that?
0: Oh, horrendous, Johnny, Yeah, absolutely horrendous. I'm not obviously going to name names, but uh, I can think of two clinical psychology uh, colleagues who have stuck their head up out the parapet, and both both finished up. Uh, well, one. Still going through disciplinary action. People, no colleagues complained that they were being reckless and um, unprofessional uh, and coming out with views that were conspiracy theories and uh, putting people's lives at risk. Um, So, one of my clinical psychology colleagues, uh, I think, has had to endure, I think it's three or maybe even four separate. Disciplinary processes already. Um, another one has been cleared recently of all old charges, and that's that's good news. But it must be hugely stressful for these people.
1: Wow. So let's um let's just rewind then for a minute. Um, in terms of your career, what is your what is your background? I guess as a health professional.
0: Yes. Um, well, I I started working for the NHS uh, back in nineteen eighty giving my age away there, really. But um, I've been to university. I got a biochemistry and physiology degree, uh, but then decided that I didn't particularly want to spend the rest of my working life in a a science laboratory, and I got interested in mental health. So after that degree, I uh, got a job as a nursing assistant in an acute psychiatric uh, ward, which was quite an experience, uh, because I'd never been in that kind of environment before. And then um, went on to do my psychiatric nurse training through the 1980s, worked as a psychiatric nurse in Manchester. Um, and then in 1987, left to do my clinical psychology training, having already got a psychology degree through the Open University as I was doing my nursing. Um, in those days, I wasn't m- married and uh, no kids so you, know, you could kind of do things like that in your spare time. <clears throat> so uh, 87 went off to do my clinical psychology training, qualified in 89, and then worked for uh, a lot of years, 28 years plus, then as a clinical psychologist in adult mental health. And the, the last 12 years of that was as a consultant uh, clinical psychologist. And... Um, then had the opportunity and I appreciate I was very lucky to opt for early retirement in 2013. Um, initially occupied myself after that, being a uh, kind of activist for better mental health care, particularly uh, looking at alternatives to the illness like any other biological psychiatry kind of approach that dominates the sphere, as you can imagine. Um, and you know, opposing what I saw as really like a psychiatric tyranny. And then in 2020, an even bigger tyranny seemed to emerge. uh, And that's uh, taken my attention. And that's where I've spent the rest of the time from 2020 onwards, really opposing that in various ways through writing, blogging, a little bit of training, presentation, like,
1: so you, you don't sound like a far-right conspiracy theorist to me.
0: <laughs> Definitely not, uh, Johnny. And, uh, it makes me laugh, you know, because as you can imagine, I'm sure you've experienced this as well on social media when you're expressing a view that deviates from the dominant narrative. Some, you know, you get called all sorts. Uh, and um, yes, yeah, so I've been called a conspiracy theory. And uh, you know, down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Yes, I was probably in many ways one of the most naive individuals you could hold to me. I'd I'd never been on a demonstration prior to 2020. You know, I tended to believe what I was told, what the state said. Kind of digested that and broadly took it for uh, gospel. Um, you know, never really got into any kind of previous uh, protest or conspiracy theory or anything that might be labeled as that. Um, But obviously that all that changed in 2020. So so no, I certainly don't regard myself as uh, conspiratorial in any way. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So before 2020, because you mentioned that before then you were already campaigning against some kind of Psych, I think you said psychological tyranny. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to know what that what that was that um, that journey for you before the whole kind of COVID debacle.
0: Yeah, psychiatric tyranny, really. I think because um, I worked in mental health. That's obviously my my area. Uh, worked with adults with a whole range of uh, uh, psychological difficulties, mainly at the more severe and complex end. So what that boiled down to was like working with people who were actively suicidal. Uh, actively psychotic, um, you know, severely depressed, a whole range of complex anxiety problems. But the actual model that dominates mental health arena in the Western world is a, is, is, is a biological one. You know, the idea that our emotions and our emotional distress is primarily caused by mental illness that is underpinned by some kind of biochemical imbalance. Right. Uh, and therefore, necessitates biological treatments in order to resolve them. I think that that kind of model, which dominates, is fundamentally flawed. Uh, I think it's associated with lots of disadvantages, not least of which is stigma. You know, and it kind of makes me smile when people talk about you know we've got to talk talk about mental illness and now you know having uh, having a kind of se- severe mental health problem is no different than than having kind of cancer or, uh, or a broken leg. And I'm kind of thinking, well, I can kind of see where that kind of argument comes from. And it's often well intended, yeah. but actually trying to make sense of emotional problems in that way uh, does lead to a lot of negatives um, and overprescription of, of psychotropic drugs, um, which have horrendous side effects in many cases and dependency and so on. so said it increases stigma, Lots of evidence that when you, if you try and explain people's distress, emotional distress, on the basis primarily of some biological malfunction, yeah, the person's going to get more stigmatized than if you try and explain it in terms of, say, past experiences or environmental contributors.
1: Okay, so so were you um, in that kind of industry? Were you a bit of an outlier, or? Do a lot of clinical psychologists agree with that point of view?
0: A lot of clinical psychologists agree with that, yes. Uh, I'd be an outlier as far as consultant psychiatry was concerned, with a few exceptions. Some consultant psychiatrists who are medically trained practitioners, as you may know, do agree with me. Uh, Some of them them are very outspoken, but most are still buying into that kind of biological illness like any other uh, model, which I think is... uh, Hugely disadvantageous, um, but as far as psychology worlds concerned, no, like, I certainly wasn't an outlier there. I think, uh, the majority of psychologists, not all, but the majority would would have sympathy with the view I've just expressed.
1: So, how would you term it then, in terms of the way that you you see things? That there's you, you mentioned that there's over over prescription, but would you agree that there is a kind of market increase in mental? Um, I, I guess think things like um, mental health issues, mental mental health illnesses, um, or do you think that they're kind of I guess overstated or how, how would you kind of um, term that change or what's happened in society to kind of lead us to where we are now and, and the kind of problems we face? How do you define it, I guess?
0: No, mental distress is certainly real. Don't get me wrong, not saying it doesn't exist. and there's lots of concerns are lots of very distressed people. Um, far more over the last couple of years, I would argue as well. So, um, so it's always there. It's just a different way of explaining it and a different way of trying to respond to it. I think the best response is is, is like a bottom-up approach with a focus on our humanity and social contact. For example, Johnny, you know, if you take uh, people who are in uh, I don't know, a floridly psychotic. Uh, state, you know, which can be hugely frightening, both for the individual and for family and friends, of course, someone who's got beliefs that most people would find bizarre and unusual uh, and it's often petrified. At the moment, traditional psychiatry would respond to them by putting them in a psychiatric hospital, often under a section, taking away their kind of control that they have uh, and treating that with medication and Sometimes still electroconvulsive therapy as well. It's is another issue in a way. Um, now I don't. I'm not saying that drugs uh, don't have a role. Uh, I think they do. You know, some people benefit from them, particularly in the short term. I think they can be really useful, particularly if someone's level of agitation is sky high. But as far as actually medium to long term improvement, I think of the evidence against. Suggests that the most effective way would be some kind of uh, crisis houses. You know, if we had 24/7 crisis houses, you know, in every town, um, staffed largely by people who've had similar experiences, that are focused on, you know, peer support, focused on uh, trying to enable people to understand what's happening to them, make sense of the bizarre experiences. It can often make sense of some of the what first first hearing might sound the most bizarre kind of ideas when you actually piece it into their life experience and some of the things that they've endured uh, often can start to make sense. Just that just that process really very human focused process. I think the outcomes would be far better. Uh, the outcomes as it stands are not very good. I'm afraid for people who who, who finish up in the often a revolving door of psychiatric hospitals. And we're still, John, those with those with uh, what, what the psychiatric profession often refer to as personality disorders, which is a horrendous expression. People with more complex uh, uh, problems often associated with lots of self-harm often spend many years just going backwards and forwards from pillar to post. You know, the psychiatrist doesn't really want them because they don't see themselves don't see them as being kind of properly ill in a way. It's a personality defect, I'd say. You know, uh, so they get kind of scapegoated and excluded and it adds to their, their problems, really. Um, so I think we could do it a lot better in the mental health
1: arena. So did you find that when you were working within the NHS that they tried to push that kind of healthcare, I guess the kind of healthcare you would advocate for these things, were they trying to push it in a different direction and you felt like, like there was kind of resistance there between the way that you thought these things should be dealt with and handled and the way that NHS wanted to handle them?
0: Yes, yes, a lot of resistance. The, the biological psychiatrists have the most power in the system. Um, they often find themselves on executive management teams and have more influence. So um, that, that model is the dominant one and you often are working against the system and, you know, having spats quite frequently, really, with, uh, with other uh, professionals, particularly uh, psychiatrists. But as I said, they're not all like that. There are, there are a group who, who uh, definitely buy into the model that I've outlined as being rather more desirable.
1: And why is it that the NHS isn't, I guess particularly welcoming to some of the, the I guess, more, I, I dare I say, holistic ways of um, handling these things? I'm not sure whether that's necessarily the right term, but why is it the NHS um, seems resistant to it? Or I guess it might not even be the NHS, but kind of traditional um, medicine in general?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting, actually, Johnny, because most uh, managers in the NHS would say that they are holistic, that they do support that kind of uh, multidisciplinary team approach and that everybody's contribution is valuable, Uh, whether that be a psychology one or a psychiatry one or a nurse one or an occupational therapist one and all the people that get involved in in the mental health arena. But in practice, what you find is it's not like that. In practice, you find that the large majority of people's care is dominated by medication, yeah. by a biological understanding. So I think there are a lot of genuine people working in mental health. Don't get me wrong. And often it's not. It's a it is a very challenging job a lot of the time. You know, and I have mm-hmm. a lot of respect for people who work on the front line, particularly with people you know, with acute uh, mental health problems. But uh, but that model. Um, of uh, the primacy of biology uh, runs through the system. And I guess if you think about it, you know, the NHS developed from looking at physical problems, so it's just an extrapolation of that way of of looking at things. Um, And if you look at management teams and, all the middle managers and senior managers, well, certainly the middle managers, uh, some of the senior managers in the health service, usually come from a background that uh, that's focused on biology, of some form or other. Um, so it's not surprising, therefore, that they they kind of uh, assume that that's the way it is. You know, I don't think often that many think about it, really. Uh, you know, many of them genuinely believe that they are offering this balanced model of care. Yeah, But when you look at it, I'd say that's not the case. It? It's uh, distorted very much towards a illness like any other kind of, uh, mindset.
1: Okay, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds maybe, I guess not too sinister <laughs> it's uh, it sounds like it's may- maybe just a culture that has evolved over time and then that's the way it, it has oh, become
0: you mentioned the word culture i think that's an important one really um i can't remember who it was now but there was some famous senior executive who once said that uh, culture will eat strategy every every morning every day kind of thing right. Yeah, right you can it's very it's very difficult to change a culture of a of an institution no matter how many strategy documents you might write and, I really don't know, and uh, educational sessions you might push. Culture is enduring.
1: Would you say, and I mean, I guess this is a theory that I have, so I don't want to put words in your mouth here, Gary, but would you say that the people working in the NHS kind of, they want to in some way fall in line with their peers and therefore anyone who has a, a kind of opinion that might be, outside of the accepted range of opinions that they're encouraged to kind of be quiet about that because there's a kind of somewhat of an orthodoxy in the way that you should approach issues.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's certainly a power hierarchy. As I mentioned before, you know, the, the consultant psychiatrist tends to rule the roost in most mental health teams. You know, there's, there's a requirement for all the mental health trusts in the NHS to have a, a medic on the trust board Obviously, and that's usually a psychiatrist. There isn't the same requirement to have a, a clinical psychologist. There are occupational therapist. you know. Uh, so there's lots of things in the system that that that, that uh, uh, ensure that the power base of psychiatry is maintained. Um, and you know, I just think that's that's unhelpful.
1: Right. Okay. So fast forwarding um, to 2020. Mm. um i guess let, let's go back to to the beginning of this whole process because i know that now you're you're working with the heart organization and things like that so this has obviously become um a big part of your your life and a big part of mm. um you know your your future after being an nhs consultant so let's go back to the beginning of this because i'm interested to know what your initial thoughts were at the beginning of covid probably going back to i guess the beginning of um, 2020 and just how things evolved there for you as an NHS consultant and someone who's worked in the, in the, in the medical field, you're probably more qualified than anyone I've spoken to so far uh, to actually speak on this issue. So yeah, what was your, what's your experience re- reversing the clock there?
0: Well, at the, the, the risk of sounding like I'm blowing my own trumpet, uh, Johnny, I, 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 I realized from a very early stage that this was wrong. There's something wasn't right here, something really important wasn't right about this. And um you know, I've got documentary evidence going back to February 2020 where I wrote a blog post um about you know does it really have to be this way you know when and we're ready towards the first lockdown. Um and it was a blog post that I got a horrendous amount of flat for from the ex-colleagues and uh, friends who, you know, were very kind of uh, emotional about it. And uh, I was, you know, verbally attacked in a number of ways, um, usually in writing, uh, obviously, rather than face-to-face. Um, and looking back, I'm, I've been asked that a few times because because I was an early, early recognizer of what was going on. Um, people say, well, you know, why do you think that was? And as I said, I'm... I don't see myself as being this kind of switched on person who's uh, always open to a conspiracy theory or or something that's going wrong, you know, because that was never me. You know, I just got my head down and worked hard and and just got on with things usually. Um, But looking back, I think there's at least a couple of factors that, that alerted me that triggered my kind of early warning signals. I think one was that a lot of my research efforts in mental health were around risk. Uh, I worked a lot with people who were actively suicidal and looked at some of my research, for doctorate was in the psychological underpinnings of suicidal behaviour. So I, you know, I, I did a lot of work with risk and risk assessments uh, and risk aversion, um, risk assessments are almost useless, you know, we're hopeless at trying to predict who's going who's to be at risk of self-destruction or murder for that matter um, risk aversion was a real plague I thought within the mental health sphere it caused so much extra distress people just you know, completely paralysed by the uh, possibility that something might go wrong uh, so I, I had that knowledge and experience I think which, which was helpful and also a bit many years ago in my nursing days back in the 80s I wasn't you know, I was charging us in the senior nurse in charge of a ward at a large psychiatric hospital for a couple of years. And they used to clash then with the infection control team, <laughs> who I used to think were hugely unre- unrealistic and blinkered in their in their outlook. Uh, you know, oh, that's in, interesting. Yeah, and, I'm, and they're, 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 I'm sure it was well-meaning, and you know, these are nice people. I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm, I don't want to slur them as being kind of uh, Bad or evil or anything by any stretch of the imagination, but but they they were so blinkered and, and, and couldn't see the bigger picture. So they come into my ward where I was in charge at, th- at that time, at thirty gentlemen with the severe mental health problems, long stay people, uh, whose some let's say some of their uh, daily habits weren't the most hygienic in the world, uh, and they used to then recommend the infection control bureaus to recommend things which were just totally unworkable, you know, and they used to have, again, many kind of uh, uh, lively debates with them about what was feasible and what wasn't and what was in the, in the, in the resident's interests and what, what, what wasn't. So I think that helped as well because I kind of know, you know, like I blinkered some these kind of infection control public health kind of people can be. So, so that together with the stuff on risk, I think set my alarm bells ringing very early that uh, I, I, no, this didn't feel right. This didn't seem sensible. And then that got me into doing a lot of uh, homework. So I started to dig and look at, you know, I don't know how many people died of flu every year, for instance, and looked at you know, viral infection and pandemic kind of plans and all these things, which, prior to that, I really paid much attention to him for, certainly for a few years, uh, so that's that's how I started to get concerned, and then obviously as it went on, it became you know, blatantly obvious that uh, that something wasn't right, and I always find it interesting, Johnny, that uh, I suppose this this testifies to my uh, non-conspiratorial credentials, really that. For, for a while, I did cling on to the idea that what was happening was some combination of incompetence and panic, you know, and that, that could explain it. You know, that's I'm not gonna go anywhere else thinking what's going on, was this incompetence and panic. Right. But then after a while, I think that got, you know, that seemed to be inadequate as, a, as an explanation of the, what seemed at first sight to be total insanity, self-destructive insanity of what was what's going on. So then I moved a little bit and said, "Well, okay, it's panic and it's incompetence, but also there's probably a bit of um, I think I called it opportunistic agendas thrown in as well, where people are leaping on this as a as a as a way of furthering their own kind of agenda, yeah. and whether that was around green issues or whether it was around universal income or some form of more state control or you know, more left wing kind of politics." Although the, the left right is an interesting one because it does not split everywhere, has it? Some of the fascinating aspects of all the other Yeah, I'm, exactly. Really what, what is
1: left and what is right anymore. None of, the, none of these terms really make that much sense these days.
0: No, I've got a very, very close allies who, who used to be you know, pretty extreme left wing people. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn supporters, for instance. Uh, who now are, are, are more sceptical than I am about and more critical, even as what's gone on than I, than I am. So, it's really interesting kind of uh, how some people have been affected by this and some people have bought into it. Most people have bought into it, um, but some haven't. Um, so, I, I kind of transitioned in a way, excuse that term, uh, but from Incompetence and panic explanation. So not, that's not adequate. There's got to be some opportunistic agendas thrown in as well, and then it's this thing. Well, even that's maybe not entirely sufficient to explain what's going on.
1: Well, it's interesting what you were saying about um you know public health experts and stuff because I thought at the beginning of this, and we were hearing so much about epidemiologists and you know epidemiologists were were like the kind of the knights of this whole thing. They were the people who were coming forward with their with their models, et cetera. And I thought, okay, well, these are the best people to, to listen to. I mean, some people would believe some epidemiologists and others would believe others, but everyone seemed to generally agree that they were the right people to be talking about this. But since then, I've heard a lot of people basically say epidemiologists are... They're, it's not a, a kind of, a lot of people don't regard it as a very real science, as a hard science. A lot of people think that epidemiology, you know, it's very model-based, it's very, you know, a lot of these things are kind of unprovable. A lot of them are open to interpretation and and to kind of subjectivity. Um, I, I'm not sure whether epidemia whether I regard epidemiology in the same way, just because so many have got it wrong. Like I know there are notable exceptions to this, such as, you know, the the ones who signed the um Great Barrington Declaration, et cetera. Like they are probably standouts who have been proven to be, um, through the lens of history, correct on this stuff, whether it's been admitted by the kind of powers that be or not. I think that most of us would agree that they they were on the money, but yeah. there's a lot of epidemiologists out there. And I would say that, you know, it was, a, it was actually a minority signing those kind of documents like the Great Barrington Declaration, um, but most of them got it completely wrong. So yeah, I, I'm just not sure how much, I'm not sure how much credibility we should give to some of these professions.
0: No, nor, nor I, and I think you're right, uh, Johnny. I think uh, the the modelling didn't do them any favors, really. Um, and again, a very narrow approach. You know, it's one of the positives of being on heart, really, is that there's, you know, we do have uh, public health uh, doctors and uh, immunologists, uh, as well as all your range of medical professions, cancer experts, uh, as well as psychologists, economists. You know, a broader base of people, really, which I think was one of the disadvantages of Sage, is that it was far too narrow in its in its outlook. It was dominated by epidemiologists. Uh, you know, where the, where the it was virus, 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 that's the only thing to consider. You know, it was almost as well, almost as if it was if, weren't it? it? Was the case that as long as they did their job on, you know, how to control. Uh, a a virus that at all costs and it was almost like their job was done and there was very little consideration of the collateral damage of the restrictions and so on. So, so yeah, I think they were, as with my kind of previous uh, view of infection control as being blinkered, I think the the SAGE uh, scientists were blinkered as well and 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 were drawn from a much too narrow range of professional groups.
1: I would totally agree with that. Yeah. I think that that really people have had to take a second look at I guess public health in general and you know how how much we can actually trust, not necessarily everyone within um working within public health, but certainly like you said, just not considering collateral damage and things like this just seems like a really obvious thing to do that was just completely neglected Mm. so yeah I, I think that it's it's probably healthy it was probably overdue it's just that we needed I guess a big event to make us all kind of sit back and you know take a look and say oh wait a second you know should we be putting all of our eggs in this basket of believing you know these people who have these you know very great credentials but are they just blinkered to to all of these other kind of side effects, for instance? But I guess on the other side of that, we've also got the fact that, you know, was it all uh, innocent, you know, like, um, which is something I want to get onto. But um, you mentioned that you'd written an article um, quite early on in this, which got you a little bit of criticism. What was the kind of main um, things that you were arguing there?
0: Well, yeah, the actual article itself uh, no longer exists on the internet because my blog was a mental health one at the time. It was called Tales from the Madhouse. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the title of the book I, I wrote back in 2015, which was a critique of psychiatric practice. And, and it was actually on that blog that I first um, mentioned my concerns about lockdowns. Um, does it no does it really need to be this way? Uh, I've still got it on Word document, but it's no longer accessible on the uh, on the web because I let that blog go. So I've, I've got another blog now, <laughs> coronababble.com, which is where I put all my uh, my uh, my blogging stuff now on on, on there. So I, I let the other one go. Uh, but yeah, they, but basically, what the first article was about was just expressing some doubts about whether um, the state's reaction to this new virus was uh, an appropriate one, or whether we were you know, responding in a way that was going to do more harm than good. No, it wasn't denying that it was a novel virus. It wasn't denying that it could be very nasty for a subsection of the population, but it was actually questioning whether we should abandon many years of pandemic planning uh, you know, because we all, as you know, probably, Johnny, we, uh, the, the public health people had always said that we should never lock down, we shouldn't mask the healthy, we shouldn't shut the schools, these things cause more problems than they solve, we shouldn't even close borders and stop people travelling, I think is what, what most pandemic plans say. And then we sort of abandoned all that very quickly for no obvious reason, as far as I could see.
1: Yeah.
0: So that, that, was, that was the first thing I ever wrote, and that was on my previous mental health blog. And I did write one more on that mental health blog on the topic as well, and that was called A Tale of Two Tyrannies. It was comparing a psychiatric tyranny, as, as I've outlined to you already, with what seems to be a bigger tyranny that was uh, uh, being inflicted upon us all around the COVID stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, let's get onto that tyranny then. Um- I guess from your background in clinical psychology, probably the things that are going to be the, the biggest um, the biggest aspects for you, presumably would be uh, masks and, and things like that. I find it very strange how masks have just been so quickly normalized, in particular um, for children, and that it's been kind of just neglected, the idea that this could possibly have any kind of impact when it just seems so obvious to me and to a lot of other people that things like masks do enormous amounts of harm. It's just not how we've, you know, we've not biologically evolved to not see people's faces, to not see people's emotions and expressions and to see people's mouths in, in the case of young children, to see people's mouths moving when they talk, et cetera. I mean, it still seems crazy to me that. Um, you know, obviously in the UK it's, it's not got a, as big a mass culture in other parts of the world right now, but it seems crazy to me that people like let this happen. So, what was your what was your view then and your view now on things like masks?
0: Well, my my, my view then was like yours that it was not a helpful in, in, intervention, but I lay the blame predominantly at the hands of my psychology colleagues, oh, okay. the scientists in the Nudge Unit. Um, I don't know how into the work of the behavioral science units you are
1: not a whole what
0: you may, you may be a, well, this behavioral scientists are embedded in every pretty much every department of government, both at the in the uk and across the you know most of the world these days <laughs> uh, it's um in the uk, it gained impetus back in 2010 with what they call the behavioral insight team that was spawned in the uh, government office of David Cameron back in 2010, um, which they they talk about using behavioural science as a a low-paying, low-cost way of enabling people to go with the flow of our own biases so as to behave in a way that's beneficial for the greater good. It's that kind of of mentality. Sounds
1: sounds awfully like just a propaganda unit to me. I mean, it just seems yeah. like a fancy name for a propaganda yeah. unit. Is, is Am I missing something here?
0: Well, no, 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 no. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. But anyway, to because a long story short, uh, SAGE, the main advisors to the government, um, they have a subgroup, the SPIB, which is the, uh, you know, I can't remember what the SPIB is now, Specialist Pandemic Group for Behavior or something, something along those lines. But that's where the behavioral scientists are and throughout, throughout uh, the COVID crisis, they've been advising governments on how to maximise the impact of their messaging campaign. So, in a nutshell, what they have done, amongst other things, if they've, they've inflated fear. Uh, so, again, we've got minutes of those SPIB minutes going back to the 22nd of March 2020 that explicitly states. Some people feel insufficiently personally threatened,
1: yeah. so we
0: must we must ramp up the fear, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And wow, have they done that? You know, so they've ramped up the fear. They've used other nudges as well, not just not just fear, which the nudges call affect is the jargon term for it. But no we tend a frightened population tends to be a compliant one. Um, they've used something that the nudges call ego which essentially is associating the rule followers with being the good guys and the non-rule followers with being the bad guys. So kind of a shaming kind of exercise. And they've used what they call normative pressure, which is exploiting the fact that human beings tend to be influenced by what they believe most other people are doing. It's it's uncomfortable being in a minority.
1: It's almost like a... um a guidebook on how to lead sheep to the slaughter. You know, yeah, quite. It, it's very strange. It's literally just like, okay, we know that people are just going to follow each other in a in a sheep-like fashion. Mm. How do we stimulate that to to the maximum degree? Mm. And yeah, like you said, it was it was, in, it was incredibly powerful. And you know, that's kind of I really put where we are now down to that. And you know, a, a lot of it was just. Even outside of just people wanting to follow each other, it was like, like you said, the shaming aspect mm-hmm. for me was probably the most powerful. You know, the idea that if you didn't wear a mask, it was like, oh, well, you're, you don't care about others. You know, mm-hmm. it was never about protecting yourself. And if you notice, because I noticed this at the beginning, it was like, first of all, they said masks don't do anything. And then they said, look, if you've got symptoms, wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And very quickly they realized, well, that, that isn't good enough. If we want to maximize fear, we need everyone wearing a mask. And how do you do that? Well, you don't say. You know, you wear it for yourself. It's like well, you wear it for others.
0: I wear my mask to protect my mates. is the advert. So. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, with the billboards and things like that, I remember seeing these billboards. It's like look in their eyes and tell tell them you're doing everything you can to stop COVID. Everything was just pure you know really trying to just get people to feel this immense amount of guilt for just doing you know normal things like walking around and and breathing air etc it's kind of remarkable but i just find it so insidious because what it's actually doing is it's taking a really good quality of human beings which is our compassion for each other's and it's weaponizing it and i just find that a real special kind of evil
0: yeah i concur yes and grossly unethical grossly unethical And, and this way, the masks come in as well, of course. Not only was that like a consequence, you know, getting us to comply with mass was one of the effects of this uh, propaganda campaign, uh, but mass themselves are a compliance device. Yeah. You know, and uh, this again, it's a topic close to my heart, really, because as you've already alluded to, Johnny, you know, the, all, the, all the specialists... No, oh, Jenny Harris, you know, balance, witty, etc, etc. Up until May, April, May, 2020, we're all you know masking the healthy isn't recommended. Do more harm than good. WHO saying the same thing: Masking healthy, not good, not worth it. Cause more problems than it resolves. And then around June, early June, 2020. It all flipped. You know, and he asked, well, I wonder what that would Now, why? Why did it flip at that time? Because there was no great, powerful, robust study that showed that mass worked. On the contrary, around that time, the most robust study was a, a review of uh, influenza, uh, randomised controlled trials for mass and influenza, which concluded they made no difference, no benefit to either the wearer or others.
1: Was this the Danish study?
0: No, no, that was later. No, this, this ah. this, was, this was a CDC study, if I recall. Okay. Yeah, in 2020. Um, if you're interested, I can send you. I can send you the link. Um, but 14 randomized controlled trials reviewed around influenza and masking, and concluded no benefit whatsoever. That that was the old, that was the major study that came out around that time. And yet, all the authorities flipped. And you can speculate as to why that was. And you know, I know Debbie Coin who was then a Newsnight journalist, quite a respected Newsnight journalist, had heard that uh, the the WHO had changed their mind in response to political lobbying. And when she put that to the WHO directly, they didn't deny it, you know. And and the other thing about masks, you know, is the crucial thing, which we just touched on, I think, is about as a compliance device, because it's no coincidence at all that masks strengthen each of those three nudges i mentioned a few minutes ago this they perpetuate fear both in an obvious way by you know if one of if we're wearing masks then at least one of us is a biohazard so it keeps the fear going yeah. and the alarm going also perpetuates fear by making it uh, more difficult to get back to normal as well you Now i'm going to get a bit technical with call it safety behavior in the psychological world but if you wear a mask like if people are wearing masks today, at this point in time, and going back and you know, trying to mix again while wearing a mask, you know, when they've, at the end of each day, when they've survived without anything terrible happening, they will tend not to attribute that to the, you know, the world's safe enough to get back yeah. into, you know, they'll attribute it to just made it, near miss, mask saved me. So it perpetuates people's anxiety. So, yeah. it, so it reinforces the affect nudge, the fear nudge. It reinforces the, the uh, shame nudge because it's a really kind of powerful way of demonstrating that you're a virtuous person. you already alluded to those adverts. I wear my mask to protect my mates. Uh, I wear my mask to protect you. You know, this kind, this kind of thing. So the flip side of that, if you, if you don't, you're a, excuse my language, but an evil bastard. You know, that's what, that's what the message is. Yeah, and linked to that, of course, is the normative pressure one the thing about normative pressure. You see, uh, Johnny, is that uh, it's powerful. You know, we tend to want to do what other people are doing, which usually is quite an helpful thing to do. If you think about it, you know, if I'm, if I'm walking down the street and everybody's running in the other direction, it might be wise for me to follow them because there might be something nasty at the end of the road. So it usually helps, you know, as in most situations in our life. But what the, what the nudges have done is they've exploited it. And uh, the more benign ways of have exploited it is by some dubious stats at the beginning saying, you know, 95% of people agree with lockdowns. you or know? well, 98%, 99% of people are following the rules, yeah. which kind of put pressure on people to do the same. But we know with normative pressure that it's much more potent if there is a tangible and very visible symbol for the, you know, the rule followers and the rule breakers. Yeah. So what better symbol could you have than the masks? Can instantly identify who's following and who isn't, and the bad guys from the good guys. And that's not coincidence in my eyes. I think it's undoubtedly the case, mask mandates were brought in and the pro mass lobby are still pushing these things. The, the British Medical Association in schools are still pushing for these things. And I've no doubt that that's because it fits with their kind of world view, uh, seen as an icon, I think, a, you know, a cultural icon now. And with normative pressure in mind, it clearly identifies who who's following the rules and who isn't. And uh, very powerful. And I'm sure you're yeah, to testify to being in a room in the early days, particularly when I'm unmasked in a room full of mass people is not a comfortable place to be in.
1: Yeah, well, well, this, this is why I think a lot of people have had to develop a lot of kind of strength and courage through this period in order to say, I'm going to reject the mask because it's actually a very difficult thing to do. And a lot of people who don't even agree with masks, they don't believe in them, et cetera, they'll wear them purely because they're like, well, you know, I want other people to feel comfortable. I don't want to be the only one not wearing it, et cetera. And I think people have had to really build strength and resilience through this time to actually say, I'm willing to go against that. You know, I've drawn these parallels and I don't think they're extreme. uh, And I'm interested to know your thoughts on this. But it's almost like when you, you you know, you mentioned that some of these people who already have a kind of political incentive have been pushing the masks because they kind of serve this, these multi purposes, you know. Seeing other people as a biohazard, identifying people, you know, as kind of outside, etc. And I look at things like communist regimes gone by, when, for instance, you have to wear maybe a certain color to show your support, or you have to, um, you know, maybe you've got to have a picture in your house of the of the president or or whatever it is. And it is kind of it's forcing this kind of culture on people, whereby you can be identified if you don't follow if you don't follow along it's like everyone knows like your neighbors know right and and the mask is that thing where it's like your neighbors know Oh, that guy doesn't wear a mask he does when he goes into the shop, he doesn't wear it it kind of causes other people to um see you as some kind of enemy but i think even beyond that it's almost like everyone who is wearing the mask it's like we're all equal we're all faceless we're all the same it kind of really feeds into a lot of these ideas of you know this kind of communist ideology of where people all have to be the same and they can't have any difference. It's, it's kind of like a manifestation of that. It's like, you know, we all have to, we all have to be the same. We all have to earn the same. We all have to have the same amount of stuff. And now it's kind of um, working its way into even people's appearances. You know, this is why in in communist regimes gone by, everyone's actually had a uniform, you know, you've got uniforms in in North Korea, everyone wears the same color, everyone wears the same outfit. Um, And now we've kind of got that, obviously it's a very, very small part of it. So, you know, I know that someone would criticize this view and say, oh, this is really extreme to make that parallel, but everything starts small and then grows, right? And the mass seems to be this unifying um, kind of visual representation that we're all the same, we're all equal, we all follow, you know, the something bigger than ourselves, some agenda bigger than ourselves. And I think it's very um, dangerous. It's a dangerous path we're going down. And I guess my belief is that there's... um, There's a kind of deeper meaning to all this that obviously is difficult to prove and it's difficult to necessarily, you know, point to maths and statistics and say this is what's happening. But it's something that I just kind of sense that's bubbling under the surface that there's a, yeah, more of a kind of metaphorical and kind of esoteric nature to all of this, which we should be concerned about.
0: Undoubtedly, I'd I'd agree 100% with everything you've said, Johnny. I, I can't disagree with any of that. I think you're absolutely right. And indeed, you may be aware that as well as heart, I'm, in, I'm involved just to give uh, one of my campaigns a plug, if I may, and that is the sure. Smile, Smile Free campaign, smilefree.org, um, which is an anti mass mandate uh, campaign that's been running for about 18 months now. Um, and with this week launched a campaign targeting masks in healthcare, because they are... The irony is, as you're probably aware, is that, you know, I don't know where it is in your neck of the woods, but in mine, and I think in most places in the UK now, um, you, know, you can go in pubs and restaurants and even public transport, and you, you know, sometimes barely see a mask. You know, they're very much a rarity in those environments nowadays. In most shops, it's, it's a rarity. Yeah. Uh, walk through the door of your hospital or walk through your, you know, the door of your healthcare centre or a GP practice and it's a requirement, you know, which is bizarre, you know, in a, a place where you might expect evidence-based practice to be <laughs> at the forefront of persisting with 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 the mass requirement. Yeah. So we've just started this campaign this week in fact with an open letter which is gaining a lot of momentum at the moment for the smilefree.org campaign, uh, which is really calling this out. You know, it's basically calling this out and, and, and okay, regurgitating some of all the evidence that we know about masks being ineffective as a viral barrier, looking at all the harms, including the social and psychological uh, ones, but, but also highlighting how some of the harms of masking are even more uh, important in healthcare settings, like you know communication difficulties. Yeah. Falls in the elderly. You know, only elderly people are our main users of of, of health centres. We're uh, excluding the hard of hearing, people with mental health problems and histories of trauma and abuse. Uh, having a mask over the face is a, you know, often triggers horrendous kind of uh, flashbacks to to previous abuse. So, and yet our health services are persisting with shameful and something that we really do need to fight. Otherwise, as you were implying in your very eloquent quote of description a few minutes ago, this is going to be so embedded in the culture of our, almost like part of the uniform. Uh, And we all know, you know, anybody who's got a, a, a psychology degree will have some grasp that healing, whether it's physical or mental, will only occur if you've got a constructive therapeutic relationship with the caregiver, with the, with the professional, with the person that you're working with. No matter how technically accurate and skilled you are, if you don't get rapport, if you don't get empathy, if you don't get sort of mutual compassion, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, that's been demonstrated yeah. time and time again. So how the hell can you build constructive, positive healing relationships behind this veneer of sterility, this anonymous kind of uh, individual. Um, and you know, so give me, give me human uh, healthcare any day, you know, give me, give me, give me the human relationships back. And the, one of the key ways of achieving that, I think, is to ditch the mask in healthcare settings, because it just makes no sense whatsoever. And I think it's hugely unhelpful for the service users.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I do worry that it will never be removed from healthcare. I think that th- there's, a, there's every chance that it could be kind of like what we've had with, you know, when you have a terrorist attack and they bring in a new measure, it will at first be applicable to a lot of things. And then it will kind of like narrow and narrow and narrow, mm-hmm. you know, so for instance, you know, first of all, everyone has to be checked going into a nightclub or, or, or a big event things like that. And then it kind of generally shrinks and shrinks, but airports is always the last thing you know for instance with security it's like we still go in you know and first it was just that you have to get your bag checked then it's you have to take your shoes off then it's that you have to um you know go through a scanner and then you know you have to even you can't take water on an airplane and things and once you bring in those things for instance um in airports they just never go away and my worry is that is that the healthcare system um you know, like the NHS and stuff. My worry is they'll never get rid of masks now; that that will just be completely normalised. But obviously, I hope it doesn't. And it's great um, what you're doing with this organisation, so.
0: I think it might be right, Johnny, but I, I hope not. You know, because I think it is really, really important that we that we that we tackle this. Otherwise, yeah, it's yeah. going to persist. And I agree with you about like you know security at airports after the 9/11 stuff. and know that you know it's kind of stuck, into not it? Even though. Yeah. The, the evidence that it's going to be it's helpful is 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 pretty
1: limited. Um, but then again, I also thought that masks were going to stay on airplanes forever, and um, yeah, like I, I flew back from Mexico to the UK a couple of days ago. And I was amazed. I actually didn't know that all the UK airlines, or I think at least most of them, w- didn't have masks anymore. And I was I was completely surprised by that. So I got in the airplane, and I was like, "Oh, amazing! Like everyone's not wearing masks. This is great." So on
0: our, on our smilefree.org site, we, we we have a mask watch section where we. It's hard to keep up to date at the moment because things change rapidly. But we have lists of the yeah. the good guys and the bad guys, really. So like for airlines, we've got a list of the ones that have ditched it. And the, and the ones like Ryanair that are still persisting with it. Yeah, you
1: know? well, I've got a flight with Ryanair actually. On literally two days' time, I'm flying out again on, on Ryanair. And yeah, apparently they they've still got it. And apparently they police it like really, really stringently as well. Like you know, if you're eat if you're eating, you've got to put the mask on between bites and stuff, which is obviously absolute nonsense. So, um,
0: a colleague today actually on heart to said that. He'd been on a, on a on a Ryanair flight recently and just said, "I'm even his two grown-up uh, children." Just said, "We're exempt," and said, "Oh, bye." Oh, so like-
1: they accept they accept exemptions?
0: Well, well they, but they accepted it for him. I can't guarantee whether they will on a, in a uniform. Right, well, or, I, I'm going. to um,
1: I'm going to try it that way. <laughs> yeah, that way. Um,
0: one, of the, one of the ironies is the healthcare stuff. I'm sorry, I get a myth, so box no- because I think it is so. so now this idea—you know, you ask the question like, "Where's the requirement come from?" You know, where, where is you no know, When you actually ask, and you know, I've had, I've had some interchange, let's say, with with healthcare facilities. I've had some of my friends, uh, and what what you often get told is, "Oh, it's 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 uh, it's it's the rules. It's it's uh, you know, it's a requirement. It's the you know, it's it's part of the NHS protocols." But when you start to actually research it and dig, you actually look at the, some of the NHS guidance for healthcare settings, and it talks about recommendations for masks. You mm-hmm. don't say requirements. Now, of course, I'd argue about recommendations, you know, but just yeah. leave that aside for the moment. You think, well, where is the requirement kind of uh, issue coming from? And it appears as you, it's hard to be certain about those things, and, you know, who knows, I might be wrong, but, but when you start to dig... It does seem that the energy behind this, coming from the, uh, the British Medical Association and their associated GP committees, they, that's where it seems to be coming from. They're pushing for masks. No, they're, they're advising uh, GP practices to do their own individual risk assessments and conclude that masks are compulsory, in which mm-hmm. case you can then say it's a requirement. No, they really are pushing this kind of masking phenomena. Which is bizarre.
1: Yeah, I'd love to do a deep dive on on why that is because some of these organizations, I'm just like, you know, what is I guess with the WHO and things, you can kind of you can kind of see the sinister roots of that. Um, but with things like the British Medical Association, I just don't understand why they'd be pushing this stuff. Like I don't see what's in their interests, unless it is just a, a strange cultural quirk, I guess. But I don't really see the the financial interest, for instance, in them pushing these things.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It was I think it was Billy Bragg, I think. That's right, isn't it? Billy Bragg, the pop star. Is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I've
1: heard the name, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure who it is exactly. A few months
0: ago, an article when asked why why he was a, why he wore a mask, I think his response was, "So I don't get mistaken for a Tory because he's a staunch." <laughs> of uh, it's an interesting comment, isn't it? In the context of what we've just been discussing. right
1: yeah 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 absolutely look i know that you're you're shop time so i just want to before we sign off just get a little bit of your take on um heart as an organization what you're doing what your role is uh with heart as well um just before we sign sign things off so yeah what what exactly um yeah what are you doing with heart and what's the overall aim of the organization
0: yeah the heart Heart group was set up I can't remember when now it seems like a long time ago, probably at least 18 months ago, probably a bit longer, nearly nearly two years. It must be two years, it must be two years plus time fly. But uh was set up as a an alternative to Sage, which might sound a bit grand as I say it back now, but, but you know, it was basically we were just, just so concerned about the advice that the government was getting that someone came up with the idea. Well, how about we set up a you know, a different group that was more rounded, had a lot more kind of perspectives on it. Because, as I mentioned earlier, you know, as well as a whole range of doctors and cancer specialists and paediatricians. And we've got psychologists, we've got economists, we've got public health doctors, we've got GPs, you know, we've got nurses, occupational therapists, et cetera, et cetera, um, sociologists. You know, we've got, we've got a much broader range of people. And uh, the primary function really has been to produce evidence uh, against the dominant narrative. Or hold our hands up you know, on the occasions where we might get something wrong. None of us gets everything right, of course, but uh, but by and large to kind of try and balance the, you know, the, the, the narrative so that people hear both sides of the story. We do that mainly through producing articles or um, heart, What's our address? Heart team. I always forget it actually. Just bear with me. I think it's uh heartgroup.org, I think it is. Uh, uh go, on, let's go on the site there, you know, this loads and loads of uh bulletins and uh information, some long pieces, a lot of brief, punchier ones, uh all kind of evidence-based, all kind of argue for. You know, a whole range of uh, alternative ways of responding, uh, both to this pandemic and to future ones. Um, so it's mainly a producer of, of evidence, really, uh, Johnny. Uh, we try and collaborate with various campaign organisations, you know, and provide them with uh, evidence and information to support their campaigns. Uh, and my my bit personally within that is, is is producing lots of written materials, mainly around the three things I mentioned, particularly nudges, uh, masks, uh, and some of the mental health consequences. Um, so that's that's basically what hearts about. We're still going strong despite having some uh, lots of attacks on us over the last two years. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: no, no doubt. And you know, like, thank you to you. You know, um, I guess there's a lot of people out there who don't necessarily have the opportunity to do anything about this because they don't want, you know, they're not a medical professional um, in any way. And, you know, I know that people like you are, you know, kind of having your reputation in some way put on the line because you're so subject to attacks by doing these things. So, you know, it's so appreciated that there's people like you out there actually standing up and willing to kind of, you know, face the criticism and things like that. Yeah, so- thank, you. thank you.
0: Although, like I said earlier, I- I think it's the ones that are still in the service. We have a we have a number of those uh, who deserve huge credit, uh, because they're fighting the battle while they're actually still in the system, which is uh, immensely courageous. Um yeah, so we can we go we got like I said, we have the trolls, we have people who hang around our uh just Seems to have nothing better to do than hang around our work kind of uh, social media feeds, and <laughs> that's right. Well,
1: Bill Gates has got a lot of bots to fund, <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. exactly. Oh, okay. Don't get me going on in yeah. That's no in,
1: yeah, all right. Just rounding things things off, then. Um, if there's any final words that you want to, to give, I know you mentioned before about um, you know, ways that people can connect, and one of them obviously is ditching the mass, but any other kind of parting words you have, and also kind of where people can where people can find you too?
0: Well, like um, um, smilefree.org is, is the mass campaign. If people want to join up, you know, just give us their email address on there. You get sent newsletters, you get involved in the campaigns. I've got an open letter at the moment. It's going out to the chief executives of the four NHS, NHS England, NHS Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, about mass in healthcare. Had a great response to that. Up to now, we've been signed by you know, We're into the thousands already of uh, wow. health professionals uh, That's great. and the public been signed up to that as well. So you know, really spread the word about about that. Um, Ted Hart, health Advisory and recovery team. Um, there's lots of useful information on the website. Um, and you know, if, if people are feeling powerless, you know, connect with, with us. Join us. Uh, help disseminate some of the information, um, as well as joining like local initiatives as well, which I've found immensely helpful uh, over the last two years, particularly in the early stages, when I think we all felt rather isolated, as if we were going crazy because nobody else seemed to be able to see what was going on. So it was wonderful to be able to connect with like-minded people, initially on social media, Twitter even, you know, find some voices on Twitter that you could agree with. Uh, but then later in the flesh, you know, at Stand in the Park initiatives and uh, you know, community assemblies and the, and the like, local people, amazing there will be people close to you, in proximity, who we are sceptical. In fact, just on that one last word, I was down the pub on Sunday And I've I've been in this house for four years plus now, living across from this couple across the way, met them in the pub, and for the first time in four years, realised they were staunch sceptics, and I've been all along. (laughs) And I didn't know. And I think that says a lot we've met. didn't know, and I'm sure they thought we weren't. You know, I noticed they weren't clanging pans when everybody else was like us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, other, yeah. Than that, other than that I haven't I haven't realized. So so there are there are there are more people who are opposed to this. Mm. Than it seems. Well,
1: more every day. It's more every day. It's
0: more every day, Johnny. Yeah, let's hope that
1: continues. Okay, well, thanks so much, Gary. I really appreciate you uh, coming and having a chat.
0: No, I enjoyed it, Johnny. Thank you for the opportunity. Good we'll luck with the podcast.
1: And keep up the great work.
0: Okay, and you. Take care.
1: Cheers.